0: The Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao.
1: Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF or F O F Friends on Fridays. This Friday we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer.
2: I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week politics program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you to the Commonwealth Club. Uh, my name is Dr. O'Reilly uh, of the Psychology Forum. I'm delighted, truly delighted to rec- introduce you to uh, my former colleague and my friend, uh, Ms. Robin L. Stucallan. Robin is a psychotherapist in private practice and a clinician with the San Francisco Department of Public Health's Tom Waddell Urban Health Center's Transgender Clinic, and it's co- called Transgender Tuesdays. She has a master's degree in social work. San Francisco State University, and completed her BA at the State University of New York, majoring in psychology and philosophy. Robin has been working with trans-identified individuals since 1993, and has been with the TG clinic at Tom Dell since 2001. She is also working as a psychotherapist at Trans Access, an HRSA-funded special project of national importance which seeks to identify models of care that effectively engage and retain transgender women of color in quality HIV care. Robin is part of the San Francisco Department of Public Health's transgender coordination and collaboration workgroup and steering committees, which are dedicated to improving the quality of care for transgender individuals throughout the San Francisco Department of Public Health. She is also a member of the Transgender Training Committee, which has, been, uh, which has designed online trainings for healthcare staff to better serve transgender patients. She also designs and presents trainings on trans- uh, transgender issues for the staff across San Francisco Department of Public Health. She has an upcoming publication in the Journal of Gay and Lesbian Mental Health and presents regularly at conferences on transgender-related clinical issues. And incidentally, she's teaching a one-day, all-day course on transgender issues at UC Berkeley Extension in October. Uh, I recommend it. So please welcome Robin. Thank you.
3: Hello. Tonight, I'm going to talk about the concept of resilience. In every community facing discrimination and oppression, there is community resistance and relationship building that responds to injustice. The history of activism and empowerment in the transgender community of the Tenderloin exemplifies, exemplifies resilience born out of shared struggle. As shorthand for this talk and is common among community members, when I use the word transgender, I am referring to people who identify as transgender, transsexual and gender nonconforming. Also, because transgender women frequently refer to each other as girls, it is in keeping with the culture that the term appears here. All identifying information has been changed in order to protect the confidentiality of people with whom I've interacted in the community. Other, very identifying information has been used in the way of photographs and quotes has been used with permission. Before I begin, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what brought me to this work. As a kid, my best friend was my maternal grandmother, Hannah. Hannah immigrated to New York from Munich as a refugee child in 1933 after the Nazis took power in Germany. Her traumatic experiences of anti-Semitism strengthened her Jewish identity. She also grew up to become someone committed to speaking out against discrimination whenever she encountered it. This seemed to happen a lot in cabs. I can remember one of many times sitting in the back of a cab with my grandmother when the cab driver, missing an excellent opportunity to keep his mouth shut, said something derogatory about Puerto Rican people. Those no good Puerto Ricans, he said little knowing he had my grandmother in the back of the cab. Sir, she said with a slight German accent, I am Puerto Rican and I'm very offended by what you just said. The cab driver looked in the rearview mirror baffled. I think that time he might have even apologized, but a lot of times they wouldn't and it would get very tense and very quiet. And as a kid, this scared me. I would hate it when she would do this. And I can remember asking her not to. And her taking me aside and saying, Rabilan, whenever someone says or does something to someone for who they are, you have to respond to the same as if it were you. If you don't do something, the next time it could be you. In some way, I think this message has stayed with me. I think this need to respond is part of what led me to work with people with HIV and AIDS in the early 90s, and later to make transgender people become such a focus of my work. Because to know the transgender people of the Tenderloin is to know people who've experienced discrimination and violence, sometimes their entire lives, simply for being who they are. Although the resilience shown by members of the trans community is incredible, We must never lose sight that it is the social structures that perpetuate discrimination that need to change. The transgender people are not the ones who need to be fixed. Above, myself and my grandmother identified as cisgender women. Western culture sees gender in terms of a binary system of male and female. It's generally thought that we will all grow up to be either a man or a woman based on the gender assigned to us at birth. This is so culturally ingrained that we just take it for granted the way it is, except that in reality, gender is much more complex. Sex is biological. Gender exists across a whole spectrum of different possibilities. Many non-Western cultures have different gender systems that include people who we consider transgender. The Native American Two Spirits, the Hawaiian mahu, and the bakla of the Philippines are all examples of third gender identities within their respective cultures. Much as race is a social construct used to maintain the power of dominant culture, gender is also socially constructed in Western culture to maintain white, male, heterosexual privilege. Sexism serves to disempower women particularly women of color, and to keep us all in a certain place in society. The lack of acceptance of gender diversity leads transgender people to experience discrimination in all areas of life. The lack of acceptance of the wide range of possible gender identities also serves to marginalize intersex people, who biologically are a combina- have characteristics of both male and female, and may not have gender identities that easily fit into the categories of male or female or a third gender identity because it does not allow room for people to self-identify as who they are. Above are two of my colleagues who identify as transgender. So what do we mean when we say transgender? Transgender is an adjective referring to someone whose gender identity Expression or behavior is different from those typically associated with their assigned sex at birth. Transgender is an umbrella term meant to encompass many different gender identities. The term trans is shorthand for transgender. Some transgender people identify as male, some people identify as female, some people identify as transsexual or gender nonconformant. One thing that's common to these gender identities Identity categories is that people identify with a gender difference than the one assigned to them at birth. Above to the right are some of my colleagues who identify as transgender. To the bottom left is Marilyn, featured in the film Transgender Tuesdays, who identifies as female. Cisgender, an adjective used to describe people who for the most part identify with the gender assigned to them at birth. The point is that everyone has a gender, not just transgender people. Some people have a gender that's in accordance with the one assigned to them at birth, and some people don't. People who don't identify with their assigned gender, transgender people, experience very high rates of discrimination. In the film Transgender Tuesdays, a documentary made about Tom Waddell Transgender Clinic where I work, Marilyn speaks about difficulty she had maintaining mainstream employment she describes being fired again and again in response to her coworkers questioning her gender identity she spoke of the inability to have a career as one of the biggest losses she experienced as a result of being transgender stating that transgender people are the most discriminated people in the whole United States Next we'll take a look at at discrimination in the transgender community. So in 2011, the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force and the National Center for Transgender Equality released the findings of the most comprehensive survey of transgender discrimination ever done. The respondents were 6,000 450 people who identified as transgender or gender non-conforming from all 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And respondents filled out the surveys either online or using paper surveys. The key findings were as follows. Most respondents lived in extreme poverty 15% of respondents reported household incomes of less than $10,000 a year. That's compared to 4% in the general population. 19% of respondents reported that they became homeless at some point because of being transgender. 1.7% were currently homeless. the rates of unemployment in the sample overall were 14%. For the general population at that same time, it was 7%. When they looked at African American respondents in that sample, the unemployment rates were 28% or up to four times the national average for unemployment in the general population. 90% of people surveyed reported discrimination, harassment or mistreatment at work or took steps to avoid expressing their true gender identity in order to avoid it. In school, grades K through 12, 76% of respondents reported harassment or bullying from other students and 35% experienced physical assault from other students. In medical healthcare, 19% of the overall sample reported that they were refused medical care because of their gender identity, and the rates were even higher for people of color in the sample. Respondents reported over four times the national average of HIV infection at 2.64%, the national average um, of HIV infection is 0.6% during this time period. For transgender women, the rate was even higher at 4.28%, and for people in the sample who ever had a history of doing sex work, the rate of HIV infection was 15.32%. Over one quarter of the overall sample reported that they had misused drugs or alcohol specifically to deal with the mistreatment they experience due to their gender they experience due to their gender identity or expression. In terms of mental health, forty-one percent of respondents reported that they had made a suicide attempt. That compares to 1.6% in the general population. And I can tell you, for the subset of the trans population that I work with, it's significantly higher. For those of us that work in the public sector, every time we hear this stat, we just look at each other and shake our heads, because we know it is so much worse in our population. The vast majority of people in the 20 years that I've been doing assessments uh, have attempted suicide at one point.
1: We'll be back with more with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
4: Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to progressivevoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. Progressivevoices.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.
3: Babe, I think we're ready.
4: We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family.
1: So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with, but work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
3: All respondents experienced discrimination, but people of color throughout the survey always fared worse than white participants, with African-American respondents experiencing the worst discrimination due to the compounding of transphobia with racism, and for African-American trans women, the compounding of transphobia, racism, and sexism. Now, let's take a look at the subset of the transgender population that I work with in the Tenderloin, first a bit about the history of trans people in the Tenderloin, and then we'll look at one woman's story. Since the 1920s, the Tenderloin has been similar to the way it is today. A sex work district where drugs, gambling, and adult entertainment are readily available. Trans people have lived there since the 1920s, if not before, due to housing discrimination. Nobody else would rent to them. Um, The records of people living there since the 20s, um, it probably goes back earlier because um, people uh, were known to be performers in that neighborhood, but it's it's not clear where they lived. In the 1960s, it was still illegal to cross-dress, and trans people faced arrest simply for expressing their gender identity. Sociologist Claire Sears argues that the laws were both a way of policing gender expression, but also spoke to larger racist and xenophobic attitudes as well about who belonged in public space. In the 1960s, jobs were scarce, and even more so than today. And many people um, worked as maids in the residential hotels in the neighborhoods, and some people worked uh, as bar help in the places where their friends would perform and then some people were forced uh, into sex work for survival. Doing sex work at that time was especially dangerous, both because of dangers um, from the Johns themselves but also from the police. Trans street sex workers were arrested without cause. They were humiliated in the way of strip searches in front of other inmates. they were sexually assaulted and frequently forced to have their heads shaved while incarcerated. And then the situation became worse as the war escalated in Vietnam. Um, the police cracked down even more on the transgender sex workers um, because of concerns about soldiers on leave contracting HIV. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, contracting STDs. And, um, and so there was even more mistreatment of them you know, in response to that. At the same time, uh, in the 60s, urban renewal programs began to displace people from the Western Addition, the Fillmore, and the South of Market districts, um, leaving the Tenderloin as the only central low-cost housing area left. So people started to move into the cheapest hotels where the poorest transgender people lived, leaving them no place to go at all. In response, inspired by the civil rights movement and the work of Martin Luther King Jr. as part of a larger neighborhood mobilization in the tenderline, in 1966, the Vanguard formed, which is regarded as the first queer youth group in the U.S. made up mostly of drag queens and young a hustlers. The Vanguard met at Compton's Cafeteria, which was a popular meeting place at that time but they experienced discriminatory treatment. The management wasn't receptive to them being there because it was felt that they stayed too long and uh, didn't order enough, and so um, they started to sort of arbitrarily be, um, be billed a fee for being there when other people weren't. So there was already a tension going into July 1966 about this at Compton's. And then an incident of police brutality against a trans woman in Compton's in August 1906 released years of rage against the police on the part of the customers for their mistreatment. The trans and queer customers fought back. It led to riots, the destruction of a police car, a newsstand, and two plate glass windows for Compton's. It was the first militant trans and queer action against discrimination in US history. And the outcome, was really a greater recognition of both of trans people and of their needs in San Francisco. It led to the creation of several social service programs, such as the National Transsexual Counseling Unit, And then later, the Center for Special Problems, part of the San Francisco Department of Public Health, began to respond much more to the needs of transgender people by having a more trans-affirmative mental health counseling program there. And then actually Harry Benjamin himself was brought in to train providers how to prescribe hormones. Also, um, of significance, at the time um, it wasn't, people weren't able to change their identifications the way they can now. Um, So they weren't able to change to change IDs to reflect other gender identities. So uh, Center for Special Problems was uh, able to provide uh, identifications for the department from the Department of Public Health reflecting people's true gender identities and their names. It wasn't perfect because uh, it still identified them as patients at the clinic, but it allowed people to get into job programs and other needed things. But all of this came about not just because uh, because social service, because the city, uh, you know, suddenly thought so kindly upon transgender people. This all came out about because of really intense community advocacy on part of the trans community in a climate that was more receptive to it uh, because of Compton's. In the early 90s, AIDS funding sources started to put money into programs for stigmatized populations with high risk and poor health outcomes. This led to the creation of several community advocacy groups, including Contra Por Vida, the Asian Pacific Island Wellness Center, and the Trans Program at the Brothers Network. These advocacy programs ran harm reduction, peer support groups for trans people for the treatment and prevention of HIV. The programs and the larger trans community were also instrumental in the creation of Tom Waddell's Transgender Tuesdays in late 1993, which is the first public health clinic in the US dedicated to providing transgender health care, including hormones based on the clinic's, um, at the time, new uh, informed consent protocols. These protocols were different than what anything, anybody else was doing at the time because they, respected client self-determination. The decision to provide hormones was a decision made between patient and doctor and and provider and it it was based on what the two together felt was in the best interest of the patient's continued well-being without requiring lengthy periods of psychotherapy or or long periods of cross-living, which would not have been possible for many of the people that the clinic was targeted at, namely sex workers in the tenderloin. As one trans activist said, the girls would go there as soon as they got off the bus. Tom Waddell also served as a place where trans people could see each other in a safe, drug-free environment and form community. As one former patient of the clinic said, it was the one place where you could go where people would be nice to you. If you were upset, there was always someone working there who would pull you into a room and talk to you. I really liked that. People were always there for us if we needed them that way. And here we have a photograph of people protesting outside of Compton's in August 1966. Next, we will meet a transgender woman new to the Tenderloin. So transgender-specific clinics in San Francisco continue to be a beacon for people both living in San Francisco and new to the city. Due to the pervasive discrimination, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia, Many transgender people have faced terrible physical and sexual abuse, both by strangers and by people who should have been their care ca- caretakers. Many transgender people have had disproportionate contact with the prison system because they have had few alternatives for generating an income in order to survive, or because they defended themselves against their attackers. This story highlights some of the impacts of these traumas in one transgender woman's history. Connie is a single 30-year-old transgender woman of Cuban and Haitian descent who grew up in Florida. She came to San Francisco after being discharged from prison in Florida where she had been uh, incarcerated because of a cocaine possession charge. Connie was raised by her biological mom and her stepfather. Her dad and mom separated when Connie was an infant and her dad moved up to New York and had no further contact with her. Connie's stepfather began raping her when she was six years old. When Connie told her mom, she said that she didn't believe her, that her stepfather was a good man and that she loved him. The sexual abuse continued and Connie's mom was physically abusive towards her as well. When she was 16, Connie's mother came home unexpectedly found her in female attire and threw her out of the house she went to new york to meet her father for the first time she said i was surprised i look a lot like him but when i first when he first saw me he said you're a b-. i don't have no son who's a and walked away i never saw him again she said she was taken in by her aunt who she says was sympathetic towards me Connie says that she knew she was female when she was nine years old. She used to borrow her cousin's clothes and dress secretly, but feared beatings from her mother if she were caught. Painfully, she hid her gender identity until she was 24. First she tried living as a gay man, then she tried living as a straight man, but was depressed to the point of feeling suicidal. She began taking hormones and living as a woman full-time at 24. She had already been living as female for several years when she was arrested at 27 and went to prison. Because she has male genitals, she was placed in a male prison. Her feminine presentation made her vulnerable to sexual assault. She was placed in solitary confinement for a while because of being trans and thought that she would be safe. Prison guards came in and forced her to perform oral sex. Later, she was placed in general population. After some trepidation, she had sex with her cellmate in order to ensure his continued protection of her from other inmates. She said, We had been doing things for a while when he said that he wanted to have sex with me. He said that his HIV viral load was undetectable so that I wouldn't get AIDS. Well, I was stupid enough to believe that, so now I've got it. Her eyes welled with tears. Can I see you again, please? She asked. I need all the help that I can get. Children who experience childhood trauma often blame themselves for inducing the abuse, as it is less frightening than to see their caregivers as so fallible. This self blame in response to abuse often continues into adulthood, as we see exemplified in Connie blaming herself for contracting HIV. In reality, she was powerless in that situation and made a survival-based decision if it even was a decision at all. But how do people get past this lifetime of self-blame and internalized stigma for who they are? In his study of minority stress in transgender people, Walter Bakhting and colleagues, 2013, found that family support, peer support, and identity pride helped to offset the stigma that leads to mental health problems. The effects of internalized stigma are also mitigated by forming a critique of the social structures that perpetuates the abuse of trans people. But how does somebody like Connie get there? As community members, providers, and allies, we start at the beginning. We show people that they matter to us. We start with love. And next we will show how that is experienced. In the next sections, we will hear from trans people themselves regarding resilience and dealing with stigma from interviews that I did with transgender activists. Above to the right is one of my colleagues who identifies. There's a poignant scene in the film Transgender Tuesdays, um, in the documentary Transgender Tuesdays, when Kelly Kelly, featured in the film, talks about when she first transitioned to living as female and lost everything. She recalls what it was like meeting trans women in the community and how they immediately extended themselves towards her. She said, they told me she, they told me what to do. First you go over to Tom Waddell and you get your hormones. Then you go over to the working girls bar. She said, well I never made it to the working girls bar. But the kindness of those girls who materially had very little and would have given me the shirt off their back The generosity of human spirit shown to me by those girls is something I will never forget. As many transgender people are rejected by their families of origin, kinship networks have always been a crucial part of community resilience. Chosen family relationships are often between a more experienced member of the community and a new girl. They may consist of many different relationships, mother, granny, auntie, godmother, and so on. These kinship networks of chosen family members function much like any other family. As one activist said, back in the 80s when I started, there still weren't a lot of resources for trans people. We relied on each other and on our leaders in the community. We had adopted mothers or aunties who'd help out the new girls. A lot of it was role modeling. People in the community watch the girls that are further along than them.
1: We'll be back with more with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
0: I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know you know it's funny because I still need I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true you know what I mean like I walk in there and And I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always try to like to give them something that's worth it—the experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it. You know what I mean? That's just always in my attitude, um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works. You know, I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And now, back to The Michelle Meow Show.
3: As another activist said of The Waiting Room at Tom Waddell, it was a way for a new girl who didn't know anybody to meet other girls. And that was so important because we needed to be shown how to do things. Girls that were new needed to be taught how to survive. We taught each other how to do sex work, and then later we taught one another how to get jobs. Above is one of my colleagues who identifies as transgender. Many of the trans people that I work with have experienced love as conditional in their families of origin. Many were rejected by their families when they came out as trans. Most have experienced violence within their families or elsewhere in childhood. In his beautiful book on addiction in the realm of the hungry ghosts by Gabriel Maté, He explains the neurobiological changes that take place when people experience early childhood trauma. These changes, he says, result in a brain predisposed to addiction. For trans people, being treated as disposable, with post-traumatic stress disorder and no support, addiction is adaptive. For many, unresolved trauma unconsciously repeats itself in abusive relationships, and many people are re-traumatized doing sex work. As one activist said, some trans people are lucky, and they're able to form new relationships and create their own families, but some are too traumatized to do this. And that's where trans trans healthcare staff can model healthy, nurturing relationships and function as another part of a kinship network instead of or in addition to a chosen family. As one activist told me, These relationships save lives by creating a tiny bit of hope that someone cares that things might get better. Sometimes knowing that someone will genuinely be worried if you don't show up can start to make us realize that we are worth caring about. As another activist said, Mary Monahan, featured above, right? Was that person that everyone knew they could go to if there was a problem. You could go into Tom Waddell, and there was Mary, and it meant so much to so many girls. She was just that person in the community. For some trans people who are so traumatized, taking that in can be a first step in healing. The clinics also function as a place where people can meet and form community and share resources in a safe environment. As one activist said, Tom Odell Transgender Clinic played a big role in us learning to educate ourselves about hormones and HIV medications to become the best consumers that we could be. We were treated respectfully, we knew our care was confidential, and we were treated with kindness. We would bring our friends there. It was like a home base. I think that Tom Waddell's 20th anniversary party was a good example of that. Everyone came to that party. And what does that say? those 20 years built a community that can't be broken. Above are two of my colleagues who identify as cisgender. Peer support is another important factor in resilience. As one activist said, peer support relationships, particularly with trans identified staff, allow trans people to see themselves positively reflected in someone who is like them. This is incredibly powerful because it creates role models for trans people offsetting the negative stereotypes that they're so often subjected to. As another trans activist said, we need to have trans people with lived experience on staff everywhere that trans people are served. Hiring trans people builds economic opportunities for individuals by giving them jobs and provides needed role modeling for other community members. As another activist told me, It was the transgender peer support groups in the 90s that made the difference. The groups became the center of my life, and my life shifted as a result. Being out on the street doing sex work, I was bored with false hope. I started learning about harm reduction and making healthier choices. When I was in the streets, risk wasn't even on the radar. Then I started seeing things differently. A lot of my old behaviors fell away as I realized that this is where I'm supposed to be. In a program that I'm working in now, several trans women have for the first time expressed interest in work or school and advocacy, stating that they want to be like their trans-identified counselor. Peer support also allows trans people to evaluate themselves, not by the standards of dominant culture, but on the basis of a supportive community of people like themselves. This serves an important function in people's ability to deal with adversity and to start to question the social structures that stigmatize them. Above are three of my colleagues who identify as transgender. Regarding identity pride, well, said one longtime activist, it's hard. For one thing, there is the internalized stigma about being trans. And then there are self-esteem issues that make it hard to make positive changes in your life without support in place. People are stereotyped and harassed, assumed to be sex workers for just walking down the street. The Polk Street area is less tolerant of trans people than it used to be. Many of the places that people would go to be together, places where people from the community would perform, they aren't there anymore. This creates isolation. Many girls are just holed up in their rooms. What offsets this? are relationships with other people. Relationships that are supportive and nurturing. Through those kinds of relationships, wherever they come from, a friend, a provider, people start to get the idea in their head that they matter too, and that people like them matter. Other people in the trans community, they also matter, and that their inequitable treatment is wrong, and that is something worth fighting for. This recognition begins the shift into a critical consciousness. Above are two of my colleagues who identify as transgender. Critical consciousness from the work of Paulo Freire is the combination of an awareness of social oppression and action. Critical consciousness acknowledges discrimination but rejects the legitimacy of the social systems that create these inequities. It offsets feelings of powerlessness by teaching people to become aware of the political and social contradictions and to fight against these injustices. In a study done by Kelso and colleagues, 2013, higher levels of critical consciousness were associated with lower HIV disease progression outcomes in HIV positive African American women who perceived high levels of racial and gender discrimination. Women with high levels of critical consciousness were more likely to have undetectable viral loads and higher CD4 counts, not mediated by antiretroviral therapies, than those who adopted a more self-blaming position. These findings have positive implications for improved health outcomes. It is again the social structures that perpetuate transphobia, sexism, and racism that need to change. Not long ago, a trans-identified client of mine was assaulted during the day outside of a busy store in a world-famous gay neighborhood and no one did anything to help her. She said, people look at me and they think I am transgender and I deserve whatever I get. She spoke of how appalling it is that transgender women of color like herself are killed and these murders are on the rise and that they often aren't considered hate crimes. Regarding her own situation, she filed a police report, is getting a lawyer, and wants to become involved, oh, she, uh, and wants to file charges. She also said that she wants to become involved in working with the trans community. She said that she wants to be a counselor, like some of the trans-identified peer counselors she works with. She said, I want to work towards something that is bigger than, is ju- than just me. I want to make things better for all of us. Frera also saw critical consciousness as a way of rehumanizing human relationships, a way in which we could see ourselves connected to all of humanity, which would compel us to fight against injustice. My grandmother Hannah once told me a story about interviewing for a, a PhD program in child psychology at NYU. When she went to the interview, she was very nervous. She was in her early 60s, and despite being respected in a related field, all she could think about was that she didn't have the profile of a typical applicant. The person interviewing her must have sensed her obvious anxiety and decided to forego the standard questions and asked her instead who her favorite poet was. She immediately answered A.E. Hausman. The interviewer asked why. She told me, well, then it got so much better because that was something I could actually talk about. She told him... I know he was a minor poet, but his poems always resonated with me. He had a painful life because of being gay. He experienced a lot of loneliness and alienation. I could relate to that because of being an immigrant and losing my country. His poems expressed how I felt so beautifully. And there it is. The oneness that Frere talks about. The oneness in humanity and all its pain and beauty through art. The oneness that connects us to everyone else. That sense of oneness that compels us to fight against injustice. That sense of common humanity is what leads us to respond to discrimination the same as if it were being perpetrated against us in whatever way we can. Above is another colleague who identifies as transgender. So to review, Factors that contribute to resilience, family support, family of origin, be it chosen family, or uh, family uh, kin, you know, as a, with a kinship network, relationships with providers, peer support, peer groups, modeling of positive identity through trans-identified staff, identity pride, and critical consciousness. The Tuesday after Pride in the Trans March, I saw one longtime patient, Annie, at the clinic. Annie said, "It was so nice to see your son at Trans March." I said, "Yes." When I when I asked him about it later, what he thought, he said, "The party was awesome." <laughs> I said how recently I'd had this moment of great parental pride when we were walking past dog-eared books on Valencia Street, and he was pointing to the window to show his friend, hey, I've got that book, and it was uh, 10,000 Dresses, a story about a young transgender girl. (laughs) So I, I was telling Annie this, and she smiled, and she said, you have to remember, I grew up in the generation when mothers would point us out on the bus and say, look at that, and drag their children away from us. It means so much to see people like you bringing your kids in to celebrate with us. I think of what a beautiful world it will be someday. Above, my son Aaron, assigned male at birth, who identifies as a boy, and who is learning that being a boy or a girl isn't based on your body, but who you are. Well, you so the term what are the differences between people who identify as transsexual and people who identify as transvestites? Well, uh, people who identify as transsexual are people who have an internal identity. Um, uh, if it's, if it's uh, you know, somebody who's uh, you know, a female transsexual, that would be somebody who uh, was assigned male at birth and identifies as female very heavily. And you know, often will have to go through surgeries or different procedures you know, to feel okay about their body. Um, Whereas um, the term uh, transvestite, which is kind of an older term, people use more the term, um, you know, cross-dresser, that uh, it's much more um, where someone doesn't necessarily have the opposite uh, gender identity. It could be someone, a lot of times, um, it's people that are straight guys who um, like to wear female attire, um, you know, in the privacy of their homes or sometimes go out. And that that's just something that, that they enjoy, but it is, doesn't have the same sort of identity, piece that goes along with it. It's more like a fetish thing. person who hasn't transitioned to their true uh, gender identity. Say, in the case of Connie, you know, she, I talked about her painfully living, um, you know, hiding her gender identity. Someone would say in that example, that would be a case of someone dealing with gender dysphoria. She really felt like a girl, but it wasn't safe for her to go ahead and transition to living as as female. And so she talked about becoming suicidal. You know, so uh, gender dysphoria is when somebody feels, really identifies in a different way than their assigned assigned gender at birth, and is really dealing with a lot of distress around that in all different ways. And it could, it it also um, is one of the reasons that people will sometimes need different surgical procedures, different affirming procedures, because people will experience a state of gender dysphoria and feel so uncomfortable with their body. That it it causes so much distress. So that's when people might need to undergo, you know, different forms of surgery in order to help resolve that. I think we're bothered by a whole lot of stuff here.
1: We'll be back with more with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
2: Um,
3: oh, I'm sorry. The question, the question is, why, um, why in Western culture um, are we so hung up on having a binary system? Why is it so fixed? Is that right? I think people are very threatened. I think people are very threatened by things that are outside of the box, and it seems to be very triggering for people. And I think, I'm not really sure... Why, exactly? I guess it would mean different things to different people, but I think that that the otherness of it makes people very frightened, um, because we have such, there's such a history of of racism and heteronormativity that really anything um, that doesn't fit into that kind of model upsets people. So, you know, you figure we just got gay people, you know, out of the DSM, you know, in fairly recent memory, right? We just had this little movement for trans people quite recently. So the non-binary stuff, that really, people really have a hard time with that. People are very put off um, by, uh, you know, being asked to use um, non-binary pronouns, uh, and and really are very, uh, among all the different uh, trans identities, I think that's the one that people, Kind of take the least seriously. I mean, even I—I—I I, I, I had an acquaintance who was working uh, in in a clinic in a healthcare system, let's say, and that person uh, was gender non-conforming. They identified um, in a non-binary way, and you know, said, "Well, I use such and such um, gender pronouns, gender-neutral pronouns," and was told by their employers. And this is like a healthcare system. This is supposed to be, and it actually was uh, a GLBT focus. Let's will say place and uh and the people you know the person's coworkers, professionals were just like oh no i can't deal with that and so i i i think that there needs to be a lot of training around it and a lot of um a lot of sensitivity development you know because all of us you know in the same way that we have the right to have our name pronounced correctly we have the right to identify however it is that we feel we are so yeah, it's, it's, it's really complicated. It's very, very hard. I mean, sadly, I think a lot of non-binary people kind of give up and just sort of, you know, will go with whatever pronouns people direct at them because it sometimes feels like such an overwhelming battle. It's, it's, it's very sad. I, I hope that that will change with more education.
2: Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week-to-Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemiao.com. See you all next week.
0: Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7
4: Eastern on Progressive Voices.